This episode contains coarse language, stories of drug abuse, sexual situations, occult themes, and described acts of violence. Discretion is advised. Diversion Podcasts. This is Backstage, the Devil in Metal. Unheard stories of sex, drugs, and rock and roll from the legends of metal music. Black Sabbath, Metallica, Judas Priest, and dozens more. In this episode... You're absolutely lying if you can't see that, as a guitar player, that anything you're doing has a direct line back to what something Tony did on the first five Black Sabbath records. It's just the fucking truth, man. Cut a long story short, I put my hand in to push the metal in and the machine came down on my hand. And it just, uh, the, the reaction of me pulling my hand back, I just pulled the ends of the fingers off. I had to come up with a different way of playing because I couldn't play the conventional way. I stand by that Iomi is responsible for every riff ever written in heavy metal. They did this completely off-key crazy stuff and they still came up with awesome vocal melodies. If evil had a sound, that's what Tony was touching on. People hadn't done that yet. It just, it wasn't the blues. It's just strange that without, with Black Sabbath, it's been really an unusual life and, and the whole thing has led us to the next place. And it's just amazing how it's happened, you know. As a working class kid in post-war Birmingham, England, Tony Iommi grew up in a region that was heavily bombed by the Germans in World War II. Playgrounds were reduced to rubble, and children played soldier in the craters, taking care to avoid sharp chunks of rusty metal and jagged pieces of rebar that seemed to grow from the cement like little steel branches. The British had spent so much money on the war that significant efforts to reconstruct the damage afterwards were still years away. Even so, the factories that weren't destroyed by the Germans were humming, and it seemed like everyone in Birmingham that needed a job worked at a steel mill. So when he was 17, Tony Iommi, like many of his peers, got a job as an assembly line worker. Yeah, I used to work in a factory, and I used to do uh, gas welding and then arc welding, electric welding. And I used to have this metal from the, from the next department. They used to send metal to me. And then I'd weld it, gas weld it, or arc weld it, whatever it would be. Tony hated his job. And halfway through one of his shifts, he decided to quit. Tragically for Tony, but fortunately for Metal, Iomi worked the whole day, even though he really wanted to go home and practice guitar for a new band he was in. And it wasn't Black Sabbath. I joined a band that were going to be touring Europe. Uh, they were called the Birds and Bees. So there was two girl singers and... Uh, yeah, they were a really good band at that time, like much like the Hollies and that type of music. And I got the job with them and I was all excited and I was leaving my job. And I went into work on the morning and done the first half up until lunchtime. Then I went home for lunch and I said to my mother, I'm not going to go back this afternoon. I said, that's it. She went, you go back, you finish off the day properly before you leave. <laughs> so, of course, I went back and, uh, and that's what happened, you know. Oh, right. uh, it's ironic how it all happened on the day I was leaving, and uh, I went. If I hadn't gone back, it wouldn't have happened. What wouldn't have happened? 
the painful, debilitating accident that nearly ended Iommi's career as a guitar player. See, like a good, obedient English boy, Tony followed his mother's orders and went back to work after lunch. The team he was assigned to was a man short that day, so Tony's boss had him fill in for a guy whose job was unfamiliar to the guitarist. They put me on this machine, which I had no idea how to work it. And um, cut a long story short, I put my hand in to push the metal in and the machine came down on my hand. And it just, uh, the, the reaction of me pulling my hand back, I just pulled the ends of the fingers off. Hi, and welcome to Backstage, The Devil in Metal, that takes a look at the stories behind the tales of legendary musicians, wild bands, outrageous events, and the evolution of various subgenres of metal that some still consider the devil's music. I'm your host, author and journalist John Wiederhorn, and all season long we'll unearth new tales, view storied incidents from a variety of angles, and talk to a bunch of musicians that have danced with the devil and so far, lived to tell the tale. This week, we'll take a look at how Black Sabbath guitarist Tony Iommi lay the foundation for metal, and how his bandmates, bassist Geezer Butler, drummer Bill Ward, and vocalist Ozzy Osbourne, took his vision and propelled it into something that reflected their dark, dreary lives. In doing so, they created an entirely new set of musical styles and techniques that birthed the beast of metal, way before anyone knew what to call it. Who am I to take on such a blasphemous task? Well, I never get a master's in podcasting or anything, but I do have some credentials. Over the past 15 years, I've co-written the book Louder Than Hell, The Definitive Oral History of Metal, and written Raising Hell, Backstage Tales from the Lives of Metal Legends, which came out in early 2020. I've also co-authored official autobiographies from Anthrax's Scott Ian, Ministry's Al Jurgensen, and agnostic fronts Roger Moret. In the process, I discovered that the intensive research and interviewing that goes into writing books was more fulfilling than working on shorter articles for magazines and websites. Seeking new horizons to explore and subvert, I discovered that podcasts were the ultimate form for telling wild stories, engaging in some armchair analysis, and preaching to a new flock of metal fans tapped into the latest social media. So grab your crucifix, say your prayers, and get ready for some devilish fun. Around the time Black Sabbath were working on their third album, and indelibly staining rock music with their bleak, frightening palette of sound, Anthrax guitarist and vocalist Scott Ian was in primary school, visiting his uncle, who was a fan of all kinds of rock music. Scott was flipping through his uncle's record collection and pulled out Black Sabbath's debut album. He saw the picture of the witch on the cover standing near a country house in the woods and was immediately intrigued. I'm like a little kid and I'm looking at this going like, what is this? This is scary. And my uncle's like, that's Black Sabbath. They're acid rock. And I'm like, what's acid rock, you know? And we put it on, and it starts with the rain, you know, and 
And then Tony, that riff comes in, boom, and I'm like, oh my God. Like I was a little kid scared sitting in my uncle's weird dark room with his black light posters up. And uh, just like, I, I had never heard anything like that. So this was my first exposure to anything, like anything like that. And I instantly liked it. I was like, what else is like this? What else is acid rock? But back to that factory floor in Birmingham in 1965. 17-year-old Tony Iommi stares in disbelief as fountains of blood spurt from the tips of his two middle fingers every time his pulse beats. Since he's on the verge of panic, his heart is pounding and blood is splashing everywhere. Tony, about to throw up, grits his teeth and looks down at his hand. Through the blood, he sees nubs of bone poking out from the ends of his partially severed fingers. Those very digits he has used for years to play guitar chords and solos that have earned him recognition in the local music scene. A few frantic phone calls later, Iomi is rushed to a nearby hospital. Instead of using pressure to cut off the blood supply to Tony's gushing fingertips, a nurse places a plastic bag over the guitarist's injured hand. It rapidly fills with blood, and Tony is terrified that he'll bleed out. Then a doctor comes by, removes the bed, and stops the bleeding. Later that day, one of Iomi's co-workers finds Tony's fingertips on the ground, places them in a matchbox lined with cotton, and brings them to the hospital. It's a nice gesture, but by now the nails have fallen off and the flesh is black and dead. There's no way that doctors can reattach them to Tony's hand. Instead, a doctor removes strips of skin from Iomi's arm and grafts it over his shortened fingers. Then, the doctor sends him home with some painkillers and a diagnosis that his guitar playing days are over. Iomi lay in bed and sulked for days. Since he couldn't plug in and rock out, he saw nothing to look forward to. The doctor might as well have told him that he had an incurable disease. The manager of the factory, a bald man with a thin mustache, was concerned about Tony so he went to his parents' house to check in. He could see that Tony was depressed, so the next time he visited, he picked up a record at the store and gave it to the disconsolate musician. Iomi said he wasn't in the mood to hear any music, so his former boss pointed out that the guitarist on the record was Django Reinhardt, a gifted player whose ring and middle fingers on his fretting hand were badly burned in a fire. Yet he persevered and became famous. Curious, Tony played the record and was blown away by what the gypsy jazz legend was able to accomplish with just two fingers. With renewed enthusiasm, Iomi began the arduous process of relearning how to play guitar. This stuff was a little technical, but it's all really important because if it wasn't for Tony's determination and dedication to play again, many of the trademark sounds of metal might never have surfaced. Tony tried playing with his index finger and his pinky, since his other fingers were still bandaged. He sounded awful. He needed to use his two damaged fingers to some extent, so he took a plastic dish soap bottle, melted it, and rolled the hot plastic into little balls. When it cooled, he cut the balls into thimble-shaped pieces that he could place over his fingertips. He spent hours sandpapering the pieces, 
so they would fit as tightly and comfortably as possible. Still, it hurt to play, and his fingers kept slipping off the strings. Undeterred, he cut thin strips of leather from an old coat and affixed them to the end of the plastic tips. It worked. Iomi was able to touch the string and play a note. He was on the right track, but he had a long way to go. In his autobiography, Iron Man, My Journey Through Heaven and Hell with Black Sabbath, he wrote, quote, Even with the thimbles on, it hurt. If you look at my middle index finger, you will see a little bump on the end of it. Just underneath it is the bone. I have to be careful because sometimes if the thimble comes off and if I push hard on a string, the skin on the tips of my fingers just splits open. Back when Tony was learning to play with fabricated fingertips, guitar string companies only made thick strings that were too hard for Tony to use in his damaged condition, especially if he wanted to play solos. So he got creative. He replaced the two highest strings with banjo strings, which were much lighter. Then he changed the position of the other strings so that the thickest string, the low E, was replaced with the thinner A string and then down-tuned to E, so it had the same tone as the original string, but was looser on the guitar and easier to bend. Tony filed down the frets of his Fender Stratocaster, so the strings were closer to the neck, and he didn't have to push them as hard to play. It made me look at the, the guitar a different way. I had to come up with a different way of playing, because I couldn't play the conventional way. I had to sort of work on chords the way I, I could do them and try and make the sound bigger mm -hmm. uh, the way I played them. With all the elements in place, Iommi relaunched his guitar playing career in late 1967 after he met drummer Bill Ward, whose band The Rest dropped by Tony's parents' convenience store and asked if Tony would be interested in joining the group as its second guitarist. When The Rest broke up, Tony and Bill moved to Carlisle, England, to join a more professional band called Mythology. The group had a manager and frequently played local gigs. However, one day, a guy Tony and his flatmates bought hash from came by their house and asked if he could leave his luggage there for a few days while he visited some friends. Tony had no idea the suitcases were filled with drugs. Soon after, police barged in and busted Tony in a drug raid. The authorities figured out pretty quickly that Tony wasn't the big stakes dealer they were searching for. They let him go, but not before news of the bust was splashed all across the cover of the local paper, which led to widespread gossip and ultimately the demise of mythology. It was a blessing in disguise. Tony and Bill wanted to put together another band anyway, but they needed other members. As Bill did when he was looking for Tony, they went to local stores to find other musicians. We went to the music shops, as you do, and look up on the board and see if there's any singers there. And we saw this one advert saying, Aussie Zig requires gig. And I said to Bill, I know an Aussie. I said, but he can't be the same one because he didn't sing as far as I knew. I, I never knew him that he'd done any singing. Uh, so sure enough, we went round to this house, this address we had, and uh, his mum answered the door and then she shouted for him and he came. It was a slightly awkward moment since Tony had attended school with Ozzy, who was a grade behind him and, allegedly, 
Tony used to bully his younger schoolmate. Tony denies the claim, adding that he might have teased Ozzy a little because he was a lower classman, but he never hurt him. Putting the past behind them, Tony and Ozzy decided to see if they had any musical chemistry with Bill. I knew him from school, but I didn't have any idea at all that he was being able to sing. We talked to him for a bit, and then we left. A couple of days later, Ozzy came round to my house, which I wasn't, I didn't live that far from him. At the time, Ozzy was playing with guitarist Geezer Butler and needed a drummer. Both duos needed a bassist. Geezer agreed to switch from guitar to bass, and the roots of Black Sabbath were planted. Basically, we, we teamed up, and that's, that's how it, it sort of started. And it was a bit of an odd combination at first, because nobody knew what everybody else could do. So we, we, we just got to a, we started rehearsing. And it was a bit, disor- well, very disorganized at first, because Bill and myself had been used to being in this other band, who, you know, and we'd all gelled and we got on uh, musically, we played quite a lot but when we got together with Ozzy and Geese it was just strange again we had to start again you know and know and find out how Ozzy could sing and find out how Geezer could play bass because he wasn't a bass player when we first had him he was a guitar player so he switched to bass I think when we I think our first rehearsal Geezer was playing bass on his telecaster just playing the bass notes and eventually he got a, a bass and uh, we went on from there It would be apocryphal to say that as soon as Ozzy, Tony, Geezer, and Bill got together, lightning struck. It didn't. At first, even a totally deaf audience sent back in time wouldn't have mistaken these guys for Black Sabbath. In other words, the pieces were in place, but metal had not yet been born. It didn't seem to be going anywhere at first. Uh, It it became a six-piece band where we had a, a sax player and another guitar player, a slide guitar player. And it was an horrendous row, to be honest. We sort of wondered what we were doing, really, but we carried on with it. Uh, and then we decided we, we didn't need a sax player and a, and a slide player. So the only way we felt comfortable about sort of removing them was to say, we're going to break up. We're not going to carry on. Uh, so that's what we did. And then we broke up for a couple of, uh, or a week or whatever, and then we got back together again, just as the four of us. Did it work much better as a four-piece? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you could sort of really hone in on it more. It, it, it was just a play around, to be honest, when we had the six of us. It was just, everybody was trying to do a solo at the same time, you know. It was just a, a horrendous row. But it just didn't all work together, you know. We're all, we, everybody's just shouting, trying to get bloody solos in. After considering various names, the musicians agreed to call themselves Earth and became an electric blues band influenced by John Mayle and the Blues Breakers and Cream. With Earth in a state of disarray, since some of the members were unable to show up for practice on time, Iomi was invited to join Jethro Tull. So with his bandmate's approval, he traveled to London with Geezer, who kept Tony company as he prepared to rehearse for gigs with Jethro Tull. He knew he had a lot of learning to do to feel comfortable with the rest of the band. Even so, the group's practice schedule was arduous and regimented. But after a few rehearsals, Tony realized that that kind of discipline was exactly what he needed. I felt really weird, you know, not being with the other guys. I mean, I really missed them. 
But the, the thing was, I was sort of, I felt a bit out of place because I was joining basically an established band and I wanted to be a part of an established band. I wanted to, you know, I wanted to be able to earn my own dues, if you like. I didn't want to join a band that was already doing well and I was just going to be the guitar player. I wanted to be in a band where you all work together and, and you are a band, you know. I didn't want to be the guitar player in Jethro Tull and like a side musician. You know, I wanted to be a part of a team. So I said to the geezer, you know, let's get the band back together, which is what we did. We called uh, Ozzy and Brill and from London and said, look, we're coming back. If, if everybody's really serious about this, you know, I'm willing to leave and uh, we'll get we'll get back together again and really work at it. And, and that's what everybody said, yes, you know, so that's what we did. Having learned with Jethro Tull how to work on a tight schedule, Sabbath wrote a bunch of 12-bar blues songs and practiced eight hours a day, seven days a week. Pretty soon, they developed a musical connection and could play both covers and originals. Iommi loved playing again with his bandmates, but he got tired of playing conventional blues rock. He wanted to do something heavier and would cater to his unconventional playing style and strengths as a songwriter. He wanted to make music that sounded evil and haunting, emulating the horror movies he and Geezer watched every week at the local cinema. That's when Tony made a deal with the devil. Or the devil's interval, to be more exact. In Latin, the music pattern is called Diabolus in Musica. It's also referred to as the tritone, the triad, and the flattened fifth. The passage consists of a note, the octave of the note, and a flattened fifth, which just doesn't sound right. The reason it's unnerving to the ear is because it doesn't follow the natural expectations created by the other two notes. That devil's note causes tension in the composition that for centuries was highly discouraged. In the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, when music was believed to be an art form to glorify God, Diabolus in Musica sounded pretty ungodly. Some considered it blasphemous, and there were rumors that it was actually banned by the Catholic Church. It wasn't. Classical composers, by and large, just didn't use it, since it would have sounded awkward in their compositions. One 20th century composer who incorporated the flattened fifth, however, was Gustav Holst, who, between 1914 and 1916, wrote his greatest work, the orchestral piece, The Planets. The first of seven movements was Mars, the bringer of war, which began with the ominous rumble of timpani and continued with horns and strings playing motifs using the flattened fifth. If you take the song Black Sabbath, the first track from the band's 1970 debut album, and likely the first metal song to use the tritone construction, there's a repeated three-note passage played at a glacial speed. In the minds of many, that created the first sulfurous whiffs of metal. Sabbath very likely have Holst to thank for that. I was particularly uh, interested in The Planet Suites Mars by uh, Gustav Holst. There's a sort of tritone in that. And I was always playing that on bass, funnily enough, before we even started writing songs. And I think subconsciously it might have uh, influenced Tony. Here's an example of Diabolus in Musica, as heard in the song Black Sabbath. Mm -hmm. 
Black Sabbath weren't the first rock band to play tritones. Jimi Hendrix's Purple Haze and Iron Butterfly's Inagata De Vida contained the devil's note as well. But Sabbath made the sound a trademark of their music and somehow did it in a way that sounded far more evil. Just one day I was in the rehearsal room and, uh, and I just started playing, as I, as I did, you know, uh, ideas and this riff came out and I thought, God, that's really, I really liked it. And the other guy said, oh, that's really good. We really like that. And so I just uh, put more to it and that was it. It became Black Sabbath. We built it up. But that was immediately then, once we'd done that song, that was the direction and we knew where we were going then from that first, you know, riff, really. It just gave us a certain feeling. When I remember when I first played that riff, I got all hairs and stood up on my arm and I knew that was it. That's it. You know, this is where we're at. This is what we're doing. It was just like being told, you know, this is what you're doing and this is the way you're going. In addition to prominently using the tritone in his songs, Iomi found other ways to make his playing sound sinister. Since he could no longer play the variety of chords he used to play, Tony almost exclusively played power chords, two or three finger formations that can be moved quickly up and down the frets to create a dense cinematic fortress of sound. Obviously, there were hard rock bands before Black Sabbath that used power chords, yet most used standard blues constructions, which made their music more upbeat. Iomi flipped the script, playing unnerving combinations of power chords that sounded more frightening. Here's an example of a typical Sabbath power chord progression from the song Iron Man. Since Tony was only using two or three strings for each power chord, he wanted to create a fuller, more evocative sound, so he used various other techniques, including vibrato, wobbling a fretted note to give it more presence, and trilling, planting a finger on a note and rapidly and repeatedly hitting and releasing the next fret on the neck. He also tapped into the technology of the day, attaching a treble booster pedal to his effects chain which gave his guitar a fuzzier, more aggressive sound than many of his peers. Anthrax guitarist Scott Ian describes Iommi's innovative playing style as groundbreaking, the genesis for evil rock. Well, first off, the most obvious statement is he's a left-hander and all left-handed people are, are evil. So you could say it just sounded more evil because it did. If evil had a sound... That's what Tony was touching on uh, on a song like Black Sabbath, you know, or even The Wizard when he's just going between bomb, bomb, bomb. Like people hadn't done that yet. It just it wasn't the blues. And he's playing chord combinations that his predecessors and his contemporaries were not using. Everything, uh, most everything at that point, whether it's Zeppelin or Hendrix or Cream, you know, I mean, anyone else who's playing very heavy rock music, it's still very much based in the blues and a, and a rock, a rock sound. Whereas Iommi starts playing more minor, more dissonant. Adds typo negative co-founder Kenny Hickey 
they opened the door to a whole world of uh, super heavy riffs that, you know, that developed after that. Even song Symptom of the Universe, same thing. Dun, 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 as far as they could. But the thing that's great about Sabbath is, and still great about those records, all those records, is they did this completely off-key, crazy stuff, and they still came up with awesome vocal melodies to go with it. You know, not like the metal today, but there's no melody. It's, you can play any note you want if you're not singing a friggin' melody. Sabbath wrote amazing bringing melodies to this shit, to this super heavy, dark, completely musical, musically incorrect shit. You know, suddenly so, throwing a major scale note in the middle of a minor, you know, and saying, sing over that. Bassist Geezer Butler complimented Black Sabbath's sound, both by thickening the tone of the songs, by playing the root note of Tony's chords, but also by weaving complementary counterpassages in and out of the main riffs. Today, the ever-modest Geezer says his playing style came not from a streak of genius, but rather because, at first, he really didn't know what he was doing. Well, I think a lot of it was because uh, I'd never played bass before, and so uh, I'd met up with uh, Tony and Bill. And when Tony started writing uh, some of the riffs, I just used to follow what he was doing until, you know, I could fill in the uh, solo parts and stuff like that. So I think basically I was just copying what he was doing to begin with. And that's what gave it, uh, you know, a lot of depth to the sound. But it wasn't long before you were creating these bass lines that used his rhythms as a root and wandered in and out of the chords he was playing. Yeah, well, uh, we didn't have a rhythm guitarist or a keyboard player, so uh, it left loads of space for me to uh, experiment with and play around with. And was that uh, a really enjoyable new experience for you? Was that a learning uh, experience and sort of a revelatory thing? Yeah, I loved it. It was, um, I mean, I'm so glad, I'm so grateful that Tony and Bill gave me the uh, the time that I needed to catch up with them on bass. So, you know, a lot of it, they were very patient with me. So, yeah, they gave me confidence and um, I grew out of that. Black Sabbath started playing the songs Black Sabbath and Wicked World in 1969 when they were still called Earth. And crowds reacted favorably. Then they discovered there was already another Earth, and they had to change their name. As legend has it, a movie theater across the street from where the band rehearsed was playing the Mario Bava film Black Sabbath, which starred Boris Karloff, and history was made. The occult-tinged name suited the band's dark, repetitive riffs, which were rudimentary enough to be easy to play, yet catchy enough to stick like hot wax to searing flesh. I just think rhythmically, Tony, for me, he really kept things simple. Rhythmically, it was Sabbath. It's very, what's that? Um, that thing is called Occam's Razor, the quickest way from you know from A to B. He he's a very simple rhythm player, 
simple riffs, but speaking very, very, I mean, you think about Paranoid, think about Iron Man, um, think about anything on those first few records. You're just talking about big, big chords going into another big chord. Very, very simple rhythmic patterns that just spoke volumes. And I think the simplicity of it certainly left a huge amount of space for Bill's jazz-leaning feel on the drums. And Geezer's, you know, Geezer's essentially the lead, almost some, in ways the lead guitar player. Because Geezer's, you know, he's not just plodding along on the bass, following what the guitar is doing. He's not just writing a root note, you know, uh, in, in the context of their songwriting. He's running up and down that bass like a Motown guy. You know what I mean? So um, I think Tony's simple rhythmic patterns left it wide open for, for Bill and Geezer to explore their worlds. Beyond the tritones, power chords, and simplicity that powered the early music of Black Sabbath, Iomi kept the songs pulsing by injecting the chug factor into the band's rhythms. Boosting the overdrive with an effect pedal, Iomi was able to create a mean-sounding crunch by palm muting, lightly placing his right palm over the strings near the bridge of the guitar, while playing one or more strings with each stroke of the pick. This technique dates back to classical guitar and acts like the Beatles and Led Zeppelin used it to great effect. But thanks in part to Tony Iommi and distortion pedals like the Big Muff, palm muting quickly became a primary ingredient of metal. Here's the basic riff to Black Sabbath's Paranoid, which provides a good example of the metal crunch. Other Sabbath songs like Black Sabbath, Warning, War Pigs, Fairies Wear Boots, and Children of the Grave also sounded great with palm muted. And another Iomi trademark entered the metal playbook. As the music genre progressed, countless bands made palm muting a staple of their songs, including Judas Priest, The Scorpions, Iron Maiden, Metallica, and just about everyone else. A Tony Iommi loyalist, Scott Ian actually credits Iommi with pioneering far more than just palm-muting power chord riffs and tritones. Without Iommi, he says, metal just wouldn't be metal. You once told me that uh, Tony is responsible for every riff ever written in heavy metal. I, th I think, I, and I stand by that. I stand by that Iommi is responsible for every riff ever written in heavy metal because if you just the trickle down theory, because even if a dude, I never listened to Black Sabbath. Well, who was influenced by Black Sabbath? Uh, you just named a bunch of bands, whether it's Judas Priest or Iron Maiden or Thin Lizzy or so on and so on and so on. Even if you skip generations and just go to doom metal bands that came out later on that were obviously listening to Sabbath. But it all it all comes. It, it really all comes from what he was doing first. I mean, he he definitely laid the groundwork for everything that came after you. you you're you absolutely lying if you can't see that as a guitar player, that anything you're doing has a direct line back to what something Tony did on the first five Black Sabbath records. It's just the fucking truth, man. 
It's like saying, well, I'm no, I'm I, I'm not related to cavemen. You know what I mean? It's just like, yeah, you are. We all we we're all related here on this planet. If you if you go back far enough and it's the same thing with with Tony's guitar playing. It, it all comes from that. As for Tony, he appreciates the accolades and acknowledges his role in planting at least some of the seeds of metal. But he says it would never have happened if he wasn't working with Geezer Butler, Bill Ward, and Ozzy Osbourne, who were interested in tearing down doors and coming up with new ways to express their contempt and frustration. In other words, if Sabbath were trust fund kids living in San Francisco, they might never have been able to artistically convey their dissatisfaction with living in the rough-and-tumble industrial city of Birmingham. You know, you'd turn on the radio and hear all these love songs and everything, and everybody's happy and flower power this and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And where we were living, it was nothing like that. You'd probably be fighting with somebody every day, and um, it just reflected what the, the lives that we were going through at the time. At one point in Black Sabbath, we were backstreet kids, and if anybody fucked us around, we went on that stage with a fucking mission, and we went on that stage to fucking musically de deball any fucker, and we could. In the early stages of Sabbath, there was nobody to fucking touch us. Looking back at the early years of Black Sabbath, it's clear that the band was creating and sometimes breaking the rules of metal with each new song. As such, they were the first to incorporate occult imagery, the flattened fifth, power chords, unconventional rhythmic patterns, and palm muting. But as is the case with so many developments in rock and metal, some of what Black Sabbath achieved happened by accident or because they were in the right or wrong place at the right time. Tony Iommi lost two of his fingertips in an industrial accident and did whatever he could to play guitar again. And in doing so, he found the way that worked best for him was completely different than the way his peers played. Geezer Butler was a guitarist who learned to play bass kind of like a guitar. Ozzy Osbourne just happened to place an advertisement for a band in a record shop around the same time Tony and Geezer were looking for a band. Iomi learned the art of discipline and fortitude when he briefly joined Jethro Tull, Bill Ward grew up as a jazz drummer and injected some of the style into Sabbath. And there are other examples. Yet Tony Iommi never felt like a music pioneer, methodically assembling a blueprint for the future of a new style of rock. He was kind of just shooting from the hip and taking each opportunity as a new adventure in the unknown. It's just strange that without, with Black Sabbath, it's been really an unusual life and, and the whole thing has led us to the next place. And it's just amazing how it's happened, you know, uh, with, with, this, with this band. We just had something that we could never explain. You know? It's always like a, a, a person guiding us, like a fifth member, you know, guiding us to, to somewhere. Uh, I can't tell you the amount of uh, occasions we've had uh, with this lineup of uh, things that's happened with, within the band that's been very unusual situations, you know. We all, always felt like some, something's guiding us, something's leading us into doing what we're doing. Backstaged, The Devil in Metal is a production of Diversion Podcasts in association with iHeartRadio and is available on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. 
This season is written and hosted by me, John Wiederhorn. Produced and directed by Mark Francis and Scott Waxman. Our consulting producer is Andrew Cal. Production assistance from Anita Okoye. And our social media consultant is Stephen Tompkins. Instrumental guitar music was by Scott Waxman. And editing by Chris Schreiner. Clem Fandango is our technical producer. And our director of marketing and business development is Jacob Bronstein. Executive producers Scott Waxman and Mark Francis. Special thanks to Oren Rosenbaum at UTA. Thanks for listening to Backstage, The Devil in Metal. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to check out my book, Raising Hell, Backstage Tales from the Lives of Metal Legends on Diversion Books. To purchase John's book, please go to Amazon.com or Bookshop.org. Diversion Podcasts.